now we read this. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, and that, I make, may, that I may make manifest as I ought to speak. In chapter 1, Paul had heard about a, a church in the center of in the center of Turkey in the Lycus Valley in the area of Colossae. He had been told it by Epaphras, who appears to have been the evangelist who went in there and planted this ministry. He's heard not just that they responded to an altar call and they've got a bunch of names on a list, but he heard of their faith, their love, and their hope. And it was these three things that he saw as evidence of their salvation. He was driven as a result of that to pray and to give thanks. Uh, thank the Lord for this response, again, a church he's never personally met, but also to pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Here's a guy that says, well, I'm so stoked that you guys have responded to the gospel, and he doesn't have that sort of tick-the-box mindset. These are human beings. And he says, I want you to take the next step. I really want you to know what pleases God and how to walk in it. And then for the rest of the chapter, he develops what it really means to be a Christian, the most fundamental aspect of Christianity. That I know this shouldn't sound revolutionary. Unfortunately, it is in some context. And that is that the most fundamental aspect of Christianity is Christ. I mean, there, it isn't churchianity. It isn't denominationality. It's Christianity for a reason. And without Christ in it, we're just kind of anity, which is really close in my mind to insanity. Now, so with that, he develops it. In chapter 1, he wants to make sure we have the right Jesus. He is the payment. He is the picture. He is the principle. He's the producer. He is the purpose. He is the very preeminent and perfectly God of all people. And so he wants to make sure you got that Jesus. A church based on another Jesus is going to be an impotent church. This is the one who is the payment for our sins. He is the exact representation of God. He is chief over every principality, might, power, and dominion, and anything that is named. Through him all things were created. He is the purpose where it says by him and for him all things were created. That means Jesus here. That for Jesus you were created. He is preeminent over all things, and he is perfectly God. And if that's the Jesus you have, then you have the right one. If you have a Jesus that's just a nice guy, a miracle worker, a decent teacher, or even a prophet or an ascended master, you don't have the Jesus of the Bible. And Paul wants to make sure, now that I've, I've heard this response, I hear of this faith, hope, and love, man, I hope you have the right Jesus. Is this the one you have? In chapter 2, he says, if that is the one you have, then keep him. Hold your course. You were rooted in him, you were established in him, you were built up in him, you were established in him. And so keep the most tender part of you open to him because Jesus is all you need and he did all you need. He is all you need because in him are, are hidden all the wisdom, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him is all the fullness of God and you are complete in him. He is all you need. He is also the one who did all you need. If you remember how we read that he resurrected us, he blotted out our sins and triumphed over the enemy and all principality and power. And with that in mind, I just love thinking about how those things were developed. The whole triumph parade and the blotting out of our sins as if they never lived in us ever before. He is all we need. He did all we need. Therefore, keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep Jesus as the substance of your entire Christianity. The moment that that leaves, 
You can still look Christian, but you're never going to thrive. You'll still look like a sprinkler, but the moment you're not hooked up to the spigot, you're going to look like one, but you're really not going to be one. And he warns us in that. If you've got the right Jesus, stick with the right Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you you need something else or that someone else had to do something else or that you're going to find completion somewhere else. Jesus is all you need and he did all you need. Therefore, keep them. Chapter 3 develops the fact I want to warn you. The reason I'm even saying this, Paul speaking, is because there are people who are really attempting to sideline you. I mean, you are, whether you know it or not, you are not red-shirting. You are a starter in the Lord's lineup. And you are on the field and you're gaining points whether you know it or not. You may not know. I, I guarantee you none of us are aware of how many testimonies our name winds up in because we really just don't know the results of a lot of these people we contact that we're encountering because somewhere down the line they may 10 years from now if the lord tarries respond to the gospel but you may have been the one planting the seed somebody else may have planted the seed you may be the one watering it and they may respond tomorrow but in either case, if you're not there when it happens, you don't know whether you're part of their testimony or not. And, and the reason I say that is Paul saying, I'm warning you, there are those who are going to try to take you, though you're, right now you're a starter on the team, though you're taking the field, and they're going to try to bench you. And it's really easy to bench you because all they need to do is just steer the car a little bit. It doesn't take much for the car to pull off the road. And so he goes, I want to warn you, these guys will use philosophy, they'll use the world's principles, and they'll use legalism's laws to basically get you off the field. Now, in all of those cases, what happens is instead of gaining points now, you're gathering knowledge, so you look really smart because you're philosophical, you know, you're, you're more, you feel like you're more in contact with the world because you're using the world's principles. You know, in, in the end of it all, you feel like you're really trying to please God, so you're struggling with all of these laws because these people look educated, erudite, and eloquent, but in the end of all, he says, I want to warn you, these guys are getting you off the field. And they have gotten so many other people off the field. I've watched people that have gotten so lit up on Jesus, so excited about the work that God is doing, and really just simple tools, preaching the gospel, trusting God's Holy Spirit does the convicting, and they're out there, and God's just gaining ground through these people. And then all of a sudden, they're like, mm, you know, I think I need to get more into. And in every one of the cases, you don't add your trade. Understand that. When you start with Jesus, you will trade Jesus for philosophy. You'll trade Jesus for the world's principles. You'll trade Jesus for legalism. And you can watch it happen. And all of a sudden, the first thing that leaves is your joy. And then someone will say, oh, the devil just stole my joy. I was, I was there. I was loving God. And now the devil just stole my joy. And boy, I'm just miserable. Well, let me tell you, nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that the devil can steal anything of a Christian. Before that point, he already had it. Why break into your own house? But the moment you give your life to Christ, the Bible says, Jesus said, when I am raised from the dead, I will give you a joy no one can steal or take. But that doesn't mean you can't trade it in. The enemy can go, oh, you got joy. But let me tell you what, what you really need to do is trade it for this thing. It's shiny. It's more exciting. And that's what, he, and what, what Paul is saying in chapter 3 is, now that you have the right Jesus of chapter 1, now that you realize he is and did everything you need, don't trade him in for any of the things that the world is packaging as an improvement program. Jesus, and then he says, well, if Jesus then is the master artist, then let him amputate. And as he amputates all of that excess flab off of the old person you used to be to show you the new person he's making you to be. 
Those old clothes aren't going to fit you, so let him give you a brand new wardrobe. And that's what we sort of mixed it to last week as we then saw from there, God saying, now that you're a new, lean, you know, keen kind of individual with a brand new wardrobe, well then here's the new society and how you play into this new society. That new society starts with husbands and wives. It doesn't start with your career. That's the last event. It's husbands and wives and then children and fathers, or actually wives and husbands, and then children and fathers, and then workers and bosses. He goes, that's the way the new society works, the one that I intended as God speaks. And from that then, he moves into this text. Now, we are clear we have the right Jesus, chapter 1. We are clear that, that we are coming to Jesus and Jesus alone for all of our needs. And then in chapter 3, we're steering clear from those things that are trying to bench us. And then he turns and goes, would you guys continue earnestly in prayer? The term continue earnestly for what it's worth. Pros katarejo is the term in the Greek. Pros means towards. Katarejo means like to katarize. Literally just means to be strong or fervent. And so you have the idea of being strong or fervent towards something. Might we say the best way we might use the word persevere? There's something where there's a bit of resistance, and the idea is I want you to be strong. Um, in American football, you hit the pads. There are these, these sort of sleds, and these sleds have pads on them. And the idea is you don't just hit it and try to hit it hard for them. We go, and the thing moves, and you're like, all right, I've done my job. You pick that thing up, and you're supposed to move it down the field. You don't just make a motion. You don't just create a, big, a little activity and go, wow, I did my job. The idea is you're going to take that thing and you have to hit it hard and you have to go strong until, the, until he says you're done, until the coach says you're done. In basketball, one of the easiest, and you watch people, the difference of, in the term is go up strong. Uh, the idea is someone's going to be trying to block you. There's obvious the reason you're on the field and it's a game in the first place is because somewhere on the other side of that, there's an opponent. And if there is an opponent, there's someone that's going to try to stop you from scoring. It doesn't matter what the game is. Someone is going to try to stop you or there's no game involved in it at all. If you're the only guy and you're out there kicking a ball into a net, who's going to cheer if there's no one trying to stop you? But when you're going up, the, the goal in the coach is to tell you to go up strong. You know there's going to be resistance. There are going to be hands in your face, on your arms, on your shoulders, on the ball. And if you go up weak, that ball's never going to make it in. You have to go up strong enough to take every person that's going to try to pull you down with you on the way up. And that's the term that he's using here about prayer. He doesn't talk about prayer with the idea that it'd be really cool if you tossed a prayer here and there out. It would be kind of cool if you peppered your life with a little bit of seasoning that we call prayer. Instead, what he tells us here is, no, notice the term continue means he already assumes they're doing this. He already assumes they're going up strong. And might I just say, as a Christian, you're going up. The question is, are you going up strong? Now, on every team, there's always someone that is an instant victim. Now, I've coached on the other side of that, and that's one of the first things I look for are instant victims. Because instant victims are people you only play if you are really ahead by an awful lot because you know they're not going to be out there anyways for long. I mean, it's the person where you just know they're, they are a foul waiting to happen. And so maybe there's a, the other team's in foul trouble. In things like basketball, you're only allowed a certain amount of fouls, and after that, they yank you from the game. So if you find a star player on the other side that's really in foul trouble, you put one of these guys in because you just know they're going to go, Ow! Oh, you heard me! And in that, then maybe you can get that guy out of the game. Is sort of the, the game of chess in that. 
And there are people like that in Christianity. They are a victim waiting to happen. You know, I was going to pray today, but let me just tell you what, my toe hurt. And you're like, and I'm not exactly sure how that stopped you from a good prayer life. And, and the reason I say that is, you, God tells us here, through Paul, I want you to go up strong when it comes to prayer. Now, when you're going up strong, that means that there's not going to be, sometimes, there's, you're, going to think like, you're going to think that everything is against you. Gravity is against you when you go up strong. But in the end of it all, if you make the bucket, to be honest, in basketball, when you have that much resistance and you still make the bucket, it is infinitely more valuable to you than if you were shooting it by yourself. And I always value those moments when you come down and your face has been slapped and one of your eyeballs is hanging next to your ear, you know, and you think you may not have all your teeth, but the ball went in because then you turn around and you look at the enemy, the opposition, the, you know, the defense and go, guess that didn't work for you, did it? Excuse me, I'm going to go put my eyeball back in. Now, the reason I say that again is this is what Paul says about these people. Now, understand, Paul is writing this from prison. It is somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D., Paul is in prison, but he's allowed to have a correspondence ministry. And it's amazing what God will do to actually make your ministry a good one. I mean, this is not what you would choose, I guarantee you. I certainly wouldn't choose it. And it isn't even like Paul said, wouldn't it be really cool if I had a, a prison ministry and that would be it? Although that's part of his prayer here or, or prayer request. The bottom line is if God didn't arrest Paul or allow Paul to get arrested, we would be missing a good portion of our Bibles. Because it is in prison that Paul writes this letter, the letter of Ephesians, and the letter to the Philippians as well. And that becomes some of the most prized, precious texts that we look at on a regular basis. Now, here is the problem. Some of you, when you read this, and even me, there's a part of me that goes, dang it. And the reason is, I don't know how to persevere in prayer to go up strong because I don't even think I'm on the court when it comes to prayer. I mean, I know there must be someone out there with an amazing prayer life. I mean, he's the pastor. He just made the angels just must sing as background music when that guy prays. And, you know, when he kneels, God just opens up the heavens. And he's like, you know, all right, excuse me, everybody else, you can go to your business. I'm going to go talk with Tony. But me, on the other hand, I'm still knocking and the phone's busy. Well, that's not scriptural. And the enemy would love for you to believe that. But might I just, I'd just like to throw out a real basic, primitive way today to begin a really thriving, healthy prayer life. And understand, none of us are absent of gravity. It doesn't matter how thin or heavy you are, we are all still subject to gravity. Which means when you try to jump, the same gravity that holds you down holds me down. If you're on the court, whether you're tall or short, and you try to go up, if you have an opponent out there, they're going to still be trying to slap the ball and keep you from shooting. And it's the same opponent for both of us. The more you train, the more you're prepared for those moments, perhaps. But the reason I say that is, the same resistances you face in your prayer life are the same resistances I face in mine. And that becomes really exciting because what that means is if we were all willing to say, you know what, my prayer life isn't what I'd like it to be, but I want it to be better. Well, then this is for us. I want to tell you in this particular season of my life, my prayer life is great, 
but it's not perfect. I'd love a perfect prayer life. How about you? I mean, there are times where I go up and I'm going to get slapped and, I, and I'm ready to drop the ball when that, slap, when that slap comes. There are other times, man, where my balls, my hands clench so tight on the ball that I know that that slap is going to come and I actually welcome it. Now, for that, if you look at the back of your bulletin, there is an acronym. It's, there's hands clenching. Notice it says P-R-A-Y. Now, I'm not one normally uh, given over to kind of doing this sort of worksheety kind of thing. But to be honest, I just really feel like this is so fundamentally important that if we don't do this, we just may not. And, and sincerely, this didn't come from, wouldn't this be a great sermon? This genuinely came from asking, well, you know what? If this season is so good in, in my prayer life, what is it about this season that's good that I could at least hand over. I want to be like Paul to say, hey, that which I first receive, I give to you. I don't want to be the guy that says, you know what, my, you know, I have a really terrible prayer life, but here are six bullet points on how to have a great one. I, uh, who wants to listen to that guy? <laughs> but let me start before you even get to all of these sort of these four things in acronym with giving you a few verses. I want you to start by realizing what prayer is and what it does. In Psalm 15, 8, it says, The prayer of the upright is his delight. Do you know what that means? Do you know what a delight is? A delight is different than something you mildly enjoy. Now, I can think of certain things, and I'm going to use Trista as our example. Or just let's just say some person that might just coincidentally be blonde and, and in our house that's Anyways, married to David. But um, there are certain things you just know if you bring these before her at the right time, she's going to give a real physical demonstration of delight before you. <laughs> On the other side of that, too, being a guy and being a bit mischievous, there are other things you can do, like getting her to lick a 9-volt battery, that will bring about the opposite result as well, which often tends to be the life of the party. But the more that somebody is demonstrative about those things, to be honest, if you are seeking to please them, the more demonstrative they are about it, the easier it is to actually lock it into your own head. Note to self, that makes them smile. That makes them more than smile. That makes them really smile. And the more you see those responses, the, the heavier that thing gets lodged into your, I want to please you. This is a good example of that. Now, whether that's the mocha or the chai tea, whether that's the flowers or no flowers, whether that's chocolate or no chocolate, whether that's a Brazilian barbecue or not, whether that's Thai food, whether that's a shoulder rub under proper constraints. You know, it isn't like, I bet that girl would really be pleased if I gave her a shoulder rub. Um, marry her first, if you're a guy. Uh, in all of that, notice that it tells us that it doesn't say that the prayers of the righteous are mildly pleasant to God. It says that they're his delight. Now, could you imagine God responding in such a way that you could physically see his joy at you doing something? And if God, if you were to say, God, what do I get you? Flowers, chocolate, prayer. God would say, prayer, please, prayer, prayer, please, prayer, prayer. And to see that and to realize we have, listen, we have a delightable God. 
we don't read that God's trying to find us doing something wrong. What sport is it in that? We find that according to John 4, God is seeking to find us worshiping him in spirit and in truth, which is he's trying to catch us doing something right, which would be much more of a sport. And in that, our prayers, if we are righteous people, are a delight to him. But let me show you to what degree. Go to the book of Revelation. Mark your space so you don't lose it. But go to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. One of my favorite texts when it comes to prayer. If you're new to the Bible, this one should be relatively easy because it's the last book of the Bible. And uh, by the way, just know there is a requirement if you do go to Shoreline Calvary Chapel, like you do here at the moment, and that is please never call it Revelations. It's one of those things where it's like, obviously you should read it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the first thing we read in the book. It's one revelation, and it's Jesus. Everything else ties into that, and it really makes the book very simple. People say, oh, it's scary and complicated. No, it's not. It's the revelation of Jesus. And if I look for Jesus in it, it actually becomes very simple. Now, in, the, in this beautiful chapter, Revelation chapter 8, there are three sets of judgments that are being poured out in its simplest sense to pin people to the wall, to make them choose whether or not they're going to pick Jesus or they're going to pick the world. And in that, the first set of them are a set of seals, each seal being opened of seven of them creates then some form of thing that in essence creates duress for the purpose of people going, God saying, have you had enough? Is this enough? Will you turn to me now? Understand, God is, if God just wanted to wipe out the people, we wouldn't have that, that portion from 6 to 19 of the book of Revelation. God would just smite everyone and the book would be done. Why would God give us this extended list of these things, these duresses and these, these moments of great grief? Because in that great grief, many of us came to him. And God knows if that's what it takes for you to come to him, that's what he'll do. That's how far God will go to get you. In chapter 8, we are at the, the last of the seven of the first of the three judgments. And it tells us in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another having a golden censer came and stood at the altar and given much incense that he should offer it. And notice what it says, with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God with the angel's hand or from the angel's hand. Now, don't miss this. If you read through the book of Revelation, one thing we recognize about heaven is it's just not a quiet place. You have 24 elders saying, worthy, worthy, worthy. You have three living creatures and ultimately an unlimited mass of people crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You've redeemed us from all nations, powers, tribes, and tongues, he tells us. We read that you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and might and majesty and riches and all anything that's good. In other words, it could just be God. If it's good, you deserve it. But they go through it, and it just seems like it grows from the four to the twelve to this mass, to this immeasurable mass. And it's just big, and it's glory, hallelujah, and glory, 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 holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. And God says, shh. The only time that we read that God silences heaven, and we don't read that God silences heaven because he's had enough of the praise. Or he's going, you know, thank you very much, that's enough. Please, I'm getting a big head. Can you guys mellow out? We don't read any of that. But for one moment, God silences heaven. What happens in that moment? For about a half hour, we read. 
Now, John is there watching this. And imagine John sees this voice like a trumpet, like the sound of a waterfall. And it overwhelms him. And then he sees these creatures that clearly aren't from his neighborhood. He says, those are weird. Let me give you a little bit of description of what they're like. And then there's these 24 guys that are clearly old and they're throwing down their crowns and you're deserving of all of this and everything surrounds the throne. It's in front of the throne, surrounding the throne, beside the throne, amidst the throne. And you can just see John just sees a throne and everything is in relation to this landmark and how glorious and beautiful and these noises and these thunders and these lightnings and these praises and God goes, stop. And at this moment, there's an incense Poured before God with the prayers of the saints. Now, did you get this? God would trade all of the prayers of heaven, all of, I should say, all of the praises of heaven for your prayers. That though all of these praises are taking place in heaven, it was the prayers of the saints that ascended before him that caused God to silence heaven. So God could go, yeah, 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 got it, thanks. Hold on a second, James is praying. Hold on a second. Sam's on her knees. I, I, I want to hear this. Now that's a powerful thing to say. This is a God who takes such delight. And imagine the idea of incense is that it should be so beautiful smelling. Now we think of incense and I start to think the 60s. I start to think Camden's booths where you kind of walk away from that thing and you kind of need to get some fresh air. It overwhelms you and you're like, I hope this doesn't stink with my clothes. You know, I mean, I think of incense kind of as a negative thing most of the time. But God had a specific recipe that anyone else, that you couldn't even get the recipe or you would, it would by penalty of death. God says, this is unique for, for prayer. This is unique for praise. And I want this, I want, and God, God, think about this. God created what we would call an olfactory association. Now, it's something that no one really ever could put their finger on, but there's something about certain smells that take you certain places. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, as weird as it is, growing up where I grew up, there's a smell of rotted garbage that reminds me of a specific neighborhood. And actually, strangely enough, there's a warm smell. Now, not all rotting garbage, but a specific rotted garbage reminds me, oh, that's my grandma's house. (laughs) Actually, outside of it, not necessarily inside. But it's weird how even a negative smell can create a positive memory because he gives this association. There are other smells that could be very delightful, but if it has a bad association, it's just not such a great smell anymore. The smell of honeysuckle is, I thought it was, you know, it would fit into the sort of, uh, could take it or leave it, until I started smelling the Galilean breeze blowing off of the sea onto the honeysuckle in Afghanistan. And my association is entirely, it's like if I smell that there are times I could close my eyes, I could just picture myself there because of how profound it is. Several years back when we were in Israel, we were given, um, was given as a gift, some spikenard. And uh, it's in a, it's in an alabaster container. Um, and we've used it on several occasions. The only place where it's used is at church solely for that. And when a text is pertinent to the idea of spikenard so that everyone in the room can walk out. And it's one of those moments where guys are a little nervous if they didn't come with their wives because they come back smelling a little bit like perfume. Uh, well, that's why you go to church, you know. But, but I can smell, I mean, every once in a while, as, and this may not sound as weird as it could, um, you know, it's one of those days where you just kind of feel like it's a bit mundane and you're kind of, 
forgetting that God's got a glory written in this day, though you may not have discovered it yet, I'll go and I'll just kind of take a smell, and I'll just be reminded of those moments where I watch people get it for the first time. And to me as a pastor, there's few things in the world, very, very few things, that are as beautiful to me as watching somebody get it. And you can watch them and they're like, oh, that makes sense. And that smell associates me. And to be honest, it's that smell that reminds me how wonderful it is to be a pastor. I never doubt it, but it's at that moment I get amped. And interesting, that particular incense was unique for this. So that if you smelled it, even on your clothes, you could remember what it was like to be among 30,000 people or more praising God at the same time and how breathtaking that would be. How amazing. I would want that on my clothes. So I could go, David parked the tent of God beside his house so that he could smell that incense, if you can imagine, and the morning sacrifices. And they take that incense and they dump it before God with the prayers of the saints. And God goes, ah. And you could see the delight on his face because the prayers of the righteous are his delight. And that's you. You could make that happen. Little old me. Yeah. Yeah. But there's more than that. As we'll develop these in just a moment. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, God tells us, and Jesus will quote this in three of the four Gospels, at the incident where he drives all of the money changers, it's turned into a farmer's market, it's turned into a bazaar at... Uh, the temple square, specifically that of the court of the Gentiles. And as he drives all these people out, his response, as he quotes from Isaiah 56, 7, is, My house shall be called not a house of giving, not a house of healing, though it would be a house of healing, not a house of praise, though it would be of praise, or a house of sacrifice, though it would be that, or a house of study, though it would be that. He says, My house shall be called a house of bread. God says, That's what my and of all the things we've listed church to be, <laughs> if prayer is what we take prayer really to be, it is a place where we crawl into the lap of God and hang out. And, he's, and, and you could see him looking at this market going, I mean, imagine taking the Camden stalls and shoving them all into our front porch area, you know, and, and then saying you really can't get in unless you buy a beanie or a scarf or a, skull necklace, you know, or something. And, and people go, I can't afford it. Well, then bummer, you're not going to church. You could see why Jesus would get really upset. He goes, you know, that's really interfering with me talking with people. There is a God sitting on his throne waiting to silence heaven, and you guys are keeping him from getting the thing that delights him. You could see why that would really upset him. In Second Chronicles 7.14, and many of us may be familiar with this text, Solomon, the context is Solomon has just seen the temple built at his dad's request, at the Lord's blueprints, and he drops down to his knees. By the way, for where we would get the idea of the posture of kneeling, from two events, Solomon on his knees with his hands raised, and Jesus on his knees in the garden. Now, granted, Jesus on his knees in the garden comes from him melting down as a human being. Um, you can assume the posture if you want, but you might want to be extremely penitent and broken when you are if you're going to follow Jesus as example. Solomon, on the other hand, is overwhelmed. He drops to his knees, his hands are raised. And in his simplest prayer, he says, God, 
this is what you asked me to build. It's been built. Did you do what you asked, what you said you would do with it? No matter where we're at in the world, if we run from you, if we turn from you, if we try to play stupid games with you, and you promise that that what will happen is you'll make my life miserable, our lives miserable if we do that, because I know you want us miserable without you, so that we would turn to you and cry out to you. But no matter where we are, if we're running from this place where we're intimate with you and we stop and we come to our senses and we say, God, I'm stupid. I've done it. I've blown it. I'm an idiot. Please forgive me and restore me. Would you please hear? And if you've allowed the misery of our land to be at waste or our lives to be at waste or whatever the case is, would you heal it? Would you restore God's response to that is Solomon. And Solomon says, Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That's Solomon. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, seek my face, I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal their land. God never promised a land to be healed when the unsaved get saved. He always puts the barometer on the saved, his people. If my people would do what they're called to do. And first, and he didn't say, if my people would go out and evangelize everyone, though he calls us to do that. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, and then turn. Seek my face. Instead of seeking their sin, they'd seek my face instead. I'll do all of it. I will heal. Do I believe God could heal England? Absolutely. Do I believe God could heal America? Absolutely. But it isn't going to be when the saved or the senator changes their mind. It's going to be when, I'm sorry, it isn't going to be when the senator changes his mind or the unsaved. It's going to be when the saved, when God's people actually turn and say, Lord, this is your your deal, not mine, and I'm actually going to get right with you. But that's the power of this. I find it interesting that in Acts 1, the 120 were praying when by Acts 2, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. In Acts 2, 42, they continued steadfastly in prayers. In Acts 6, when that church then started to grow to the point where widows weren't being attended to, the leaders assigned specific people that were of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they went and did the work. But they said, we're going to continue doing what we're called to do, which is, by the way, study the word and pray. Will continue with the ministry, they tell us, of prayer and the word. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were called, got their calling of ministry while in prayer. In chapter 10, it was the Gentile Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who winds up getting the call to actually receive him as the call is the warning that there's a guy coming in and he's a little bit crazy. And while that's happening, another guy's praying on a rooftop. And he falls asleep and God gives him a vision. So in essence, in prayer, Peter gets the call to go to him. I think, wow. All of these amazing things take place during prayer. As a matter of fact, God talks about the hours of prayer. Every major event, in essence, in the book of Acts, one way or another, seems to take place around the hour, an hour of prayer. And there were three of them each day people were given over to. And I think what in, how interesting that people would be there praying for their nation and themselves and their families while God starts to move right outside that temple area. I think, wow, if that's really... And I don't want to call it the power of prayer. Understand that that term really makes me a little nervous because it isn't the power of prayer. It's the power of the one you're praying to. 
I mean, if the power was in prayer, you could pray to the piano and get some kind of response. The power is in the one you pray to. But let me try to now, now that we've belabored the aspect of that we're going to lay a foundation, let's do it. Four things in regards to prayer. And these are things that I'm going, all right, God, these are four things I want to make sure that I've done when I've prayed. First of all, the word is, as we see it here, pros eukamai is the word in the Greek. Pros again means towards. You means good. Like eulogy means good word, for instance. And the word akamai, akamai means to um, a will, an intent, a desire. So what I have is towards a good desire. When I first gave my life to Jesus, I thought that what a prayer life was, was trying to get God towards my good desires. I mean, I wouldn't have put it in those words, but that's basically the way my prayer life went. God, I've got some really good ideas. I've got some really great things I want to see happen. I've got some things I really prize high, and I really want to get you on my side to get them, get there, do this, accomplish whatever. But to be honest, we've really spun that thing 180 if that's the case. Prasyukamai literally means to cast yourself before someone else's goodwill. It's to entreat. Now, the reason I say that is the P is present. And the idea of present is I want to present myself in prayer. I'm not presenting myself with the intent of getting God on my side. I am presenting myself actually for God's deployment. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 38, one of my favorite texts for this, Jesus looks and he says that, and you're, many of us are familiar with the text, Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest would send harvesters, for which we often say, huzzah, do it, God, send harvesters. Change it, save those people, God, do it. And then the next thing he does is he turns around and he goes, go. And you go, uh, excuse me, I was praying for you to save people. And God says, and I'm responding, go. And that's the part, and this is why I love it to be the first of these four things, is if I'm going to pray, the first thing I'm going to do is present myself to God and say, I'm yours. I am yours for your will to do your pleasure, your deal, not mine. And what's cool is if you're anything like me, if I'm like trying to go through this thing and I derail halfway through it, I'll start at the beginning again. I can't lose for starting always with presenting myself. All right, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. And the idea of prasukamai is the idea of saying, God, I want to throw myself before your goodwill. In Romans 6, 13, it says, to not present our members or our body parts as instruments of unrighteousness, but present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. In Romans 12, 1, it says, in view of God's mercy, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And he says, this is a very reasonable or logical act of worship or service or obedience to me. And I realize if this is where my prayer starts, I'm in good hands. God, I am presenting myself to you, but there's a problem in my presentation. I also recognize that I come to him faulty. And it is in this first thing that I'm going to be confessing. I'm confessing because I want to give God the very best me for his deployment. I don't want to give him a person that says I'm kind of limp-legged, weak-armed, tired and nauseous. And God, you've got the other 20% of me ready to go. 
I want to give God the very best of me. And I want anything hanging on me that's going to keep me from deploying uh, to being deployed. I don't want to have anything that's going to make me more reluctant or to try to overanalyze what God says when he says go. It's a simple command and I want to go. And in that, I just want to say, God, are you doing it on us? And with that, I want to confess. Now, hear me out. Confession may be a revolutionary thing for you because maybe you've been taught confession involved a box and a guy. Maybe you've been taught confession was what you saw when someone went, oh, sorry. But confession, hear me out, in the Greek is the word homologamas. Homo just means same. Lagamas means words, thinking, or logic. It's where we get the word logic from. To confess means you have the same words. This is where I think is beautiful. No wonder why God tells us to confess. Because the idea of confessing my sin isn't going, well, sorry, God, I did wrong again. The idea is that I'm going to let my words and my thinking and my logic agree with God's on this. God, this is what the world calls it, but this is what you call it. I agree with you. This is what I am, or this is what I've done. This isn't a little thing. This is, a, this is what you call it. I'm gonna, we're going to agree on the same terms. We're going to agree that you said this is wrong, even if the rest of the world says it's okay. I'm agreeing to your terms because I want to be pres present myself to you with no limitations. And in my presentation to God, I want to be able to say I have nothing that's going to keep me from following you. And you tell me, all right, well, then this is what we have for the day. No wonder why the Bible says to pray without ceasing. Because if you're anything like me, I am constantly trying to take that back. And go, you know what? Oh, wait a minute, my will, here's a good thing I can do, or whatever. And God says, you know what? I've got a better will. And I know this, God's desire for us is always better than ours. And I ask myself, in prayer, when I'm saying amen, have I presented myself to him? Have I genuinely said, all right, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours for the taking, and I don't want anything between us. The R, then, is receive. Now, this becomes a real fundamentally crazy part of praying because it gets really manipulated by some nutcases out there that really think that they're the best thing. I shouldn't call them nutcases, but I'll say this. People who I wouldn't agree with who think that the best thing that God has to offer you involves this world. That God's, Do I believe that God wants you prosperous? Absolutely. But if you think the best prosperity God has to offer you is a new car or money, you are robbing yourself of any eternal vision whatsoever. I believe that God wants you to prosper, but you know what? I won't need those things if I'm prospering spiritually. I won't be so starved for affection or attention or affirmation or amassment if really what I am is resting in the arms of God. But on the other side of it, there are things that God promises. James 1 tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, we are to ask of God in faith without doubting, and he gives to us liberally and without reproach. He tells me, if you pray, you should expect to receive wisdom. Now understand, wisdom isn't knowledge. Wisdom is what to do with it. Knowledge is getting information. Wisdom is, now what in the world do I do with it? And let's face it, that is where we usually seek the Lord on the most. Sometimes we lack knowledge, but most of the time we just lack wisdom. God, which job do I go? Which place do I go? Which thing should I do today? I'm lacking wisdom. Wow, I have this circumstance in front of me. Which decision? Where do I go with this? I'm looking for wisdom. But if I'm genuinely praying and I'm presenting myself to God, well, then it's like, God, I'm going to expect to receive from you. I'm going to expect to receive that knowledge or that wisdom. But also I know this. Jesus says, if your fathers on earth being evil know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your heavenly father give you this Holy Spirit if you ask him? Now I think that's a really important text. Because if that's the case, then I should expect to receive God's Holy Spirit when I ask him for it. 
But I would ask him that I would, and you, you hear it when we, before our study comes, God, immerse me that I would disappear and fill me that I would have your power to do your will. And I just pray that you would have, that's Luke eleven thirteen, by the way, for that text. And, and the idea of this, I want to receive. And when I go to prayer and I have in my prayer life, I want you to know my Bible's with me. Or my iPhone's with me, but it's already on that, on that patch because I could get derailed just as easy as you. And so I want to have it already on that application so that when I turn on my iPhone, it's there already. So I'm not going, oh, emails, what do I, you know, I, I'm right where I'm in the zone in it. Because there are times where the Lord may just simply say, and he does to me often, hey, I want you to read this chapter today. Or I want you to read this book today of the Bible when I'm going, Lord, I'm looking for wisdom or I'm looking for direction or clarity on this aspect. And God will say, good, because we're going to First Peter today. Or excellent, we're going to go to First Timothy. Or you know what? Let's read through the book of Ruth today. And, and it's like, and the Lord's going, can we hang out? And I want to show you some really cool things in it that aren't to teach other people so that I could love you in it. Because if I'm going to really pray as God calls me to, I want to receive. I mean, let's face it, if all of prayer is is me just talking and I'm not going to expect to hear anything or receive anything from God, how, you can do that to a wall, but how long would you do that before you fall asleep or start staring and going, wow, there's a crack in the wall. Oh, wow, the paint's actually, I wonder what color paint was underneath that. I mean, if you're anything like me, if that's where I'm at, it's not going to last long. And it's also, more importantly, not going to be meaningful. And I think in my prayer life, am I presenting myself and am I receiving Am I there to say, Lord, I'm here to receive what you have for me? And by the way, God says in Psalm, 80, or, yeah, in Psalm 81, I believe it's verse 13, he says, oh, that my people would listen to me. See, God's never stopped speaking. We've just stopped listening. And it is, sometimes you're like, well, God, I'm not hearing something new. But Saul had that problem when he seek to, sought to bring up Samuel. And what Samuel said in a nutshell was, God's already told you something and you're living in disobedience to that. Why would he tell you something new when you're still busy disobeying the last thing? God's not a salad bar. It isn't like you can skip over one thing to get to the next. Every step he gives you is a required course. And that may be a trial. That may be a ministry. And the Lord says, look, at, I'd like to lead you in this thing right now. And I'd like to show my glory in a beautiful way. Come on. You know, well, actually, Lord, I was just hoping to just be your delight and disobedience. Can I do that? Hello? Hello? God, where are you? I feel far from where were you talking? I want you to tell me something new. And God says, hello, let's go back to what I already said that you're disobeying before we go to something new. I love that about him. That he doesn't just sort of skate over something and go, well, we're just going to let that fester and I'm going to get angry and throw it at you later. Or we're going to deal with this right now. So am I presenting myself? Am I receiving? The third thing, the A stands for ask. In Matthew 7, verse 7, it's an easy one to remember. He actually gives us that acronym. He says, ask, seek, and knock. If you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock, the door will be open. That's a really powerful text. It's been manipulated with this. Crawl into the flesh and demand from God. But Jesus had already told us that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. He's already told us that we are the people who are going to bring that light to the rest of the world. And that we are no longer to be like the rest of the world, but we are to, rather to treasure heaven and the things of heaven, not the things of earth. And if that's where we're going to be, why in the world would we be asking for things of the earth's treasures when we're supposed to be treasuring the things of heaven? And that's where it's all going to get down to in that chapters 5 through 7. But then he goes, now, now that we're aware of the fact 
that you're supposed to seek the treasures of heaven. Well, don't be afraid to ask for them. Don't be afraid to seek them, and don't be afraid to knock. Now, James would say, James, the, the writer in his book, not this particular James before, <laughs> although he might say it too. He said, adulterer and adulteresses. He says, you know why you don't get when you ask? Because you ask amiss, that you would spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, what you're really trying to do is just please yourself instead of pleasing the Lord. Why would God give you that if it takes you away from him, if the most important thing to God is your relationship with him? But in regards to asking, if you're anything like me who's naturally selfish, the first thing I think is, well, here's my list now, dear Santa, in Jesus' name. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 or, or so, God gives us his spit list, S-P-I-T, because he says, I command you or challenge you that all supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all men, especially those who are in, in power. Spit, supplication, prayer, intercession, thanksgiving. And the reason I say that, if you're going to ask, one of the things that are fundamental in your asking time is first, and this is always keeps me in check, is am I willing to first intercede? Am I willing to first be asking for others before I ask for me? Now I'm asking, first, Lord, can I stand in the gap? Can I stand in between your wrath and an individual, between your wrath and a nation? In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, God says, I looked around the world to find one person that would be willing to stand in the gap. I couldn't find a single one. And by the way, God's a good looker. It isn't like God didn't flip over the rocks or didn't look behind, didn't move things to find it. If God can't find a person who will intercede, there really isn't any. And what's interesting is how broken his heart sounds as he read as he lists out this text. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 16, he says, Look at I I span the earth looking for an intercessor, and I couldn't find anyone. Now that is someone that's really willing to stand between a God who has a right to perform judgment. And an individual who, in essence, is begging for it. Say, God, please have mercy on that individual. Because I know, and here's the thing, God genuinely wants to work in that manner. But he's looking for someone on earth that's willing to stand in between. Now, there's one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. But if he lives inside of us, then we should be that person now here on earth in physical sense. And if I'm going to ask, then I want to genuinely ask the Lord out there really right now genuinely seems completely begging for your wrath I want to stand in the gap first then I'll ask for me and he does tell us that in Psalm 106 by the way actually I should say in Psalm 55 22 it tells us to cast our burdens on the Lord because he will sustain us he'll never permit the righteous to be moved so yeah so lay your request before God but first man intercede don't make it a selfish time And I ask, what about you when you're asking? Is there that in your asking? And that gives me the why then. That's what we're left with here. And presenting myself, Lord God, I'm yours. For your shaping, for your molding, for your deployment, for your enjoyment, do your work. And I want to receive from you everything, everything you want to give me today. Direction, clarity, wisdom, your power, your Holy Spirit. I receive every good gift because they come from you. And that good gift may be a trial today. That good gift may be a challenge today. But if it came from you, it's good. 
even if it doesn't seem to be convenient or inexpensive. And I want to lift up people. I lift up my friends in Africa. I lift up my friends in Russia. I lift up our friends right now, Lord. We want to, we want to pray for the, the Brits right now that are being held captive, Lord, in Libya. And I just pray, Lord, that that would be a way that we could just openly declare that that one specific day we're going to get on our faces for that and watch your freedom just so they could see you're real because I know they're so desperately wanting to show this country you're real and you're God and you're Lord. And then we get to why. And why is yield. Yield with thanksgiving. Uh, let me fill you in on information you may miss. God... <laughs> God's vocabulary and response is not restricted to yes. And he's not under obligation to say yes to you at your easiest whim. It drives me crazy when I hear someone say, oh, God didn't answer my prayer. You know, I asked God for this and he obviously didn't answer my prayers. Excuse me, is no an answer to your prayers? Because God may very well say I answered your prayer with a no. And to be honest, I am so thankful for when God has answered my prayer with no. There have been times where I've been, Lord, this would be really cool. You're welcome to respond in whatever way you want. And God says, well, then let me, let me respond definitively. That's not a door anymore. That's a wall. And I'm knocking on the wall waiting for someone to answer the wall. And I'm going, God, what happened here? I prayed for this. And God says, yes, you did, son. And out of love, the answer is no. Or out of love, the answer is later. You see, the, I mean, I remember there was a young guy in our fellowship we used to call Jethro Sparkplug. He was, he was, man, that guy was a hoot. And he was, he was a very much like someone that stepped right off the set of Dukes of Hazard. if you are familiar with that particular TV show. It's one of those sort of deep south, yeah, all Confederate things, you know. And, but he was the first guy that would crawl into a, into a something the side. I mean, he would go for his way through anything, and he'd come out all nasty. And he, he would be the first one to crawl down a toilet hole if he had to, to do something. I mean, he, was, he was a quick servant, but he was a nut. And I remember, man, he was like 20, maybe, maybe 20. And he was like, I need to be married. And I'm praying right now that the Lord, and I'm like, bro, I really don't think you need to be married right now. Oh, I know there's a woman out there. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure there is a woman out there. But I'm praying and I tell you, I'm waiting for the Lord's response. I'm like, what if he is responding right now? He's like, well, he can't be responding because then the answer would be no. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> See, the thing is sometimes, to be honest, even if it were a good thing, but it was at the wrong time, we wouldn't know what to do with it anyways. What if God made Ruthie an amazing artist? And he made her an amazing artist as a sculptor and on a grand proportion with rock. And her primary tool was a jackhammer. She'd, now, let's be honest. Those of us who are familiar with Ruthie are laughing because you think she'd love one of those babies right now. She'd try to do it in the house. She'd be like, this is awesome. She probably weighs a third the weight of a jackhammer. She's seven years old. 
Is a jackhammer a bad thing? No, it isn't. And to be honest, if it be the case that God would call her in such a direction, it would be a very great thing when she's larger and stronger and more mature to handle it. But right now, it's a really, it would be a very bad thing. And in the same way, there are times where the Lord may have a really beautiful jackhammer for your life. But now is not the time. You're kind of an infant and you're asking for a bandsaw. And God says, I love you, no. And you're like, how can you? And you ever do this? God, how can you love me and not give me the bandsaw? I love you, God. I serve you and I'm selfless and I love you and I deserve a bandsaw. And God says, no, I'm keeping it from you because I love you. I'm single. And God says, yes, right now you would be a bandsaw. I'm still busy carving you into a very marriable person. I'm still busy carving you into a person that has a ministry first. But you don't enter into this thing with a state of need. You enter it with a state of overflow. Woe to the person who enters any ministry, marriage or otherwise, with a state of need versus a state of overflow. Because then they'll use then the ministry as a means to an end instead of an opportunity to do something that blesses. And I've watched this, especially in youth ministry. How many times someone was really unpopular in high school or whatever, secondary school, and then they became, they, I really believe that God's calling me into high school ministry, secondary school ministry, and then they won't even lead the kids because they're still busy trying to get popular with them. Now, I'm not saying that's the case all the time, but I'm saying I've watched that happen more than once, and I've watched people who got into very compromising positions, praise God, never at our fellowship, but we've watched them where you're like, whoa. That would never happen if you didn't enter into this with a state of, of overflow. Look, at, if I can't yield, then I'm not really praying the right issue. Jesus taught me to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, we need to recognize. Uh, you're asking me, not demanding from me when I have a right to say yes or no. I have a line item veto opportunity with every one of your prayers. I will do this, by the way. We've been in circles now where we pray with people sometimes um, that are, they love the Lord, but their doctrine is real janky. And, and you know, so we, I call it the line item veto or the line item amen. And the idea is, is that, I mean, sometimes they're just like, Lord, I just want to pray you smite all of us. And God, I just pray you would just tear off our limbs so we can praise you. I mean, I hear things like this every once in a while. And I'll go, hmm, hmm, hmm. And then they'll go, God, we just want to praise. And then you get to the heart of it. God, because we just want to be fully surrendered. And I'll be like, amen to that, Lord. Amen to that statement. I really want to keep my limbs, unless it's necessary for you to tear them off of me. And, you know, and, and we had a pastor like that, to be honest. And he just loved the Lord. But he was like, God, just knock me down and humble me and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wow, Lord, if it's necessary. <laughs> But if it's not, don't you don't need to smack me around for fun, you know. And it isn't fun for you, and it certainly isn't for me. But in that, I want to yield. It tells us in the book of James again, and we're really pulling a lot out of that today. That it says in chapter four, verse seven, to submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. It doesn't just say resist the devil, and he'll flee. It says submit yourself to God. God, you're Lord, you're boss. I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to yield. But I'm not just going to yield. I want to yield with thanksgiving. Every time we're taught to pray, there's always some form of thanksgiving involved in it. 
um, which just doesn't mean baking the turkey and having stuffing. The idea of thanksgiving is, is that I want to be thankful, first of all, that I know God's hearing my prayers. I know that he's responding, whether I see it, sense it, feel it, or otherwise. But I know this, that God's going to make me a better person every time I present myself to him. I am presenting myself to his chisel. I'm presenting myself to his buffing, to his polishing, to his painting, because I know that, like yourself, I'm God's masterpiece. And every time I throw myself on his workbench, he's going to do something really cool. It may not feel good, but it's going to be really cool. In a moment, as I wrap this up, I'm going to ask you guys to get into pairs or triplets, if you would. I challenge you to try to find someone you may not be that familiar with, but don't just sort of scout the room and figure out who do you think will be the cutest, because I'll probably be praying with my daughter. But uh, <laughs> um, humility, that's one of my strongest points. Um, but I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask for you to just sort of say, all right, let's do this. I mean, it's not like, okay, we need to pray this formula per se. But you know what, Lord, I want a better prayer life. And I'm going to start by presenting myself to you. And to go around in those groups and say, all right, Lord, I really want to do this. Wouldn't it be weird if we were like, okay, let's sing a song and amen and we're all happy and let's go have soup. And this whole thing's about prayer and it's all like we all kind of nod. It's like, well, then let's live it out. I really want to present myself to you. And in presenting myself to you, Lord, you have a will, you have a desire, a drive for this day. And I want to receive whatever is necessary to live that out today. I want to receive your Holy Spirit to whatever degree. You tell us you don't give your Holy Spirit with measure. But Lord, I want to receive your commands, your will. I want to receive, Lord, any information, wisdom, or knowledge you want to give me today. And I want to receive your power, Lord, to do that which you call me to do today. I want to receive your love today in a way, Lord, that I can really embrace you like I should. And Lord, I want to ask for, I want to ask for these friends of mine. I want to ask for these needs. And I ask for these issues in my own life as well. And, and with that, Lord, I, I surrender it all to you because in the end of it all, I yield to you in this. I started by presenting myself. I agree on all of your terms. And I end the whole thing, Lord, with the same. I just yield to you and I want to thank you for it. I want, I want it to be in thanksgiving. And I wonder why it says that in John 14, 13. And whatever you ask in my name, hear this out, that I will do. Don't stop there that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Don't miss that. People like to remove that last statement, and that's the whole purpose for it. Whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do so that the Father would be glorified in me, is what Jesus says. If I'm asking something and it doesn't glorify the Father, glorify the Father and the Son, he doesn't promise to do that. I ask according to his will. I ask in the name of my Savior, my Master. And in the end of it all, it's for the Lord's glory, for the Father's glory. Okay, last thing, and then let's bring this to a close. After Paul tells us to be vigilant in prayer, with thanksgiving, then he says this. Pray, would you please pray for us too? And it's fascinating what Paul doesn't pray. Paul doesn't develop the sorriness of his circumstances. He doesn't develop the suffering of his situation. He could take this. Let me tell you what, man. I was suffering. I'm in prison. It's dark. The food's terrible. And I don't even get any of the latest run DVDs until they're way past due. And the library, man, those books are boring. And I can never seem to get out to the yard to work out in time. There's always somebody in front of me. And Paul doesn't, he doesn't whine. And I wonder how many of us would. I wonder how many of us do under circumstances less grave than this. He says, this is, Paul says, I, can I ask just for some prayer for me. 
Would you please pray that this prison would become my platform? Would you please pray that, that the word of God would get out as a result of this? That's what he prayed. In other words, what he's praying is, in its simplest sense, for opportunities. It is that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in chains. He doesn't say, hey, you know, could you get this, pray that this burden would get off of me. What he'd say is, would you pray that this would become an opportunity to share Jesus? Imagine if every circumstance that hit us, that that's what we would pray. You're struck with a terminal disease. You say, God, would you please turn this into an opportunity to get the mystery of Christ out of people? You know, your car gets clamped. God, would you please use this as an opportunity for the word to be spoken to speak the mystery of Christ? A horrible breakup occurs. Would you please use this as an opportunity to speak the mystery of Christ to get rid of that? And you realize that's a brilliant prayer. But there's one more thing which just shows the humility of Paul. He doesn't just pray for opportunity, he prays for consistency. And he says, that I would make it manifest as I ought to speak. Do you realize what that means? What Paul is saying is, would you please pray that I could live it out too, though? I mean, it's one thing to be able to have the boldness to speak this truth. It's another thing to be able to say, you know what? I really want to live this out too because most of these people here have no clue what in the world I'm talking about. And they're going to watch me. Would you please pray that I would live it out? Jesus would say in Matthew 23 as he pronounces this polemic against the religious leaders, starting in verse 2, that the scribes and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. Therefore, because they do, whatever they tell you, you should observe, observe it and do it. But don't do according to their works because I tell you, don't do that. Because they lay heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one of their little fingers to help. In other words, what Jesus says is, it isn't that what the religious leaders say is wrong. It's that their lifestyle is completely contradictory to it. And Paul says, I'm aware, and I want to remind you, Paul came from that group. When Paul speaks at his defense to these people, he calls them men and brothers. Brothers means they were his colleagues, not his superiors. And that was the religious leadership. Stephen would call them men and fathers, or brothers and fathers. But Paul spoke and called them brothers. In other words, Paul was one of these men and he left that and Jesus says, hey, and this was before, this was when Paul was one of those men, Jesus says, hey, they can, what they say is tight, but what they do, on the other hand, don't do it. And then later Paul comes to him and he goes, you know, could you please pray for me? One, that no matter what the circumstances are, that they would become an opportunity to share Jesus. And the second is, would you pray that I'd, I'd actually live it out and not just say it? That this wouldn't just like a ministry, look like a ministry of talk. By the book of Philippians, and I'm going to turn there to close. Would you do that? Now you're in Colossians. The book to your left is the book of Colossians. Two quick verses to show you how that prayer is being responded to. The first one of them is in chapter 1, verse 13. In a simple sense, Paul is writing to a very female-heavy church, and he recognizes that they're really freaking out because he's arrested. And he tells us this in verse 13, that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. 
Paul says, even though I'm in prison at this moment, I'm using it. I want to. I want at least want to start by saying, "Hey, um, I'm not in prison for being a a wicked man, for being a thief, for being a murderer. I did all that stuff before Christ. I'm being oddly enough, I wasn't in prison for that. Now I'm in prison because I believe in Jesus, and everybody knows it. That's the response to him saying, "Would you please pray that I could manifest this." Now flip to Philippians 4, verse 22. In Philippians 4, 22, it says, All the saints, this is Paul sort of saying goodbye at the end of it, all the saints greet you, but especially those that are in Caesar's household. What does that tell you? That the word of God is manifesting and is going forth. Because what Paul says is, tongue-in-cheek, if you will, getting a little cheeky is, Listen, hey, by the way, lots of Christians here say hi. There's this jailer, and there's this other guy that sort of runs around with the keys. And there's even some of some like, and by the way, at this point, we're talking about some, we're talking about Nero is what we're talking here. And this is the guy that, that would like Christians on fire, covering them in pitch. And he goes, oh, man, Caesar's got a mole in the house. I just want you to know some of those guys that used to torture you, whatever. Hey, they say hi now and they say, praise the Lord. <laughs> the reason I say that is, do you realize that Paul said to the Colossians, hey, would you pray that the word would go forth? And they pray. And then Paul says, hey, guys in Caesar's household, they say, what's up? Praise the Lord. And pray that I would manifest it. And then Paul says, I want you to know there isn't a person here who works for me who doesn't know why I'm here. There's not a single person. There's like, oh, there's that murderer in cell block B. And there's that guy on death row. And you know about that guy. And then there, I don't know. There's like this fruitcake guy. He just he's, he, he worships God. I don't know. He's in prison with the rest of them. But it's like, it's, and imagine what that's like around the lunch table. But there isn't a person who doesn't know it. Do you realize God was responding to that? Or would it be God's will that these people be reached? Would it be God's will that these people would get the truth? Of course. They're praying according to God's will in it. And you know what? They prayed expecting. And here's the great part. If Paul were to write a second letter to the Colossians, I do believe he would have included those things in there. He said, remember how you were praying for this? <laughs> Guess what? This is how it's manifesting. Stop praying in a manner where you think somehow God's kind of t- telling some angel to take a message and they're sort of dictating something in shorthand of your prayer. God's silencing heaven to hear you, even today. And he is desperate in his heart to find somebody who will stand between Camden and his wrath, that will stand between the drug addict and the wrath, that will stand between the molester and God's wrath, that will stand between the violent and his wrath, that will stand between the atheist and his wrath, that will stand between the rampant Darwinist and his wrath. And God's looking for people whose hearts are not broken from things, but broken for them. And so first I want to pray, and then I want to send you to pray that, that God would make this church a praying church. A church that is willing to get on our knees and say, look at we're not asking you to move outside of this building. We're asking you to move inside this building and here first.
may he move inside this one. And you're going to change that one on your own. I'll just have the joy of being a part of it. And I'm getting back on the field where I belong on that one. Would you pray with me?